One of Australia's most talented new authors has published her first novel, an exploration of hatred and dispossession. This is Fakes and Frauds, the book scandals that rocked Australia. And this one, well, it's one of the biggest and most damaging. I'm Sarah Lestrange. It's the early 1990s in Australia, and a young Brisbane University student, Helen Demidenko, is about to rock the literary establishment. Helen had entered her book into what was then the most prestigious Australian award for an unpublished manuscript. It was for a writer under the age of 35, Alan and Unwin's Vogel Literary Award. The award that launched the careers of celebrated Australian authors Tim Winton and Kate Grenville. And Helen's novel, The Hand That Signed the Paper, won the Vogel Award that year, which was 1993. Matt Rubenstein was on the shortlist that year too. And although he didn't meet Helen then, it was the beginning of a long professional relationship. I didn't go to the award ceremony because I, I knew that I, I hadn't won and couldn't make it from Adelaide to Sydney. But um, I had to sort of hide my my jealousy at not having won, having lost to the book. But uh, I could see why the judges had awarded it the, the prize. The celebrated Australian journalist and arts broadcaster David Marr presented the Vogel to Helen Demidenko at the awards night and said the book demonstrated she was astonishingly talented with the true novelist's gift of entering into the imagination of those she's writing about. And although there were murmurings at Alan and Unwin that there were problems with the book, The Hand That Signed the Paper was published a year later in 1994. Helen Demidenko won the Vogel Award last year for her book about Ukrainians who collaborated with the Nazi invasion during World War II. The narrator is a young Queensland University student, Fiona Kovalenko, whose Ukrainian uncle has been charged with war crimes he's said to have committed during the war. And the story alternates between Fiona's perspective as she comes to terms with the implications of the war crimes tribunal and the life of her family members in the Ukraine before and during the war. Helen said the story was inspired by her own family history, particularly their experience of the 1932-33 Ukrainian famine. Parts of it are very close indeed, particularly the famine parts in the earlier part of it. I depended very heavily on my dad's memories of what the famine was like and his brother and uh, some other of my relatives as well. How did you research it? Did you did you go to the Ukraine? Or, or... No, I haven't been there since I was 12. Elsewhere on the ABC, Helen said this about the family connection. I used my own family, bits of it, like my own family background because it was easier to write about rather than completely making it up. And I do have a divided background. I can't sort of pretend I've got two Ukrainian parents and things like that because I'd speak Ukrainian fluently if I had mm. and I don't speak Ukrainian fluently and that tends to be what happens when you're a half-caste Ukrainian. You sort of speak bits of it because you don't speak it at home. And my mother's actually Irish Catholic, so... <laughs> and from a long, proud line of Fanians and is very Republican, so she's quite different to the mother in the novel, believe me. 
In Helen's novel, the mother character is Protestant Irish, not Catholic. Helen Demidenko even felt that her Ukrainian background made her ripe for teasing at school too. I'll never forget at school, oh, you're Uranian, are you? What nationality is that? <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, that's a planet. I was at a welcome morning tea for new research students at the University of Queensland and who should be there but Helen Demidenko. I had no idea she was going to be there. Maggie Nolan met Helen Demidenko in early 1994 when they were both students at the University of Queensland in Brisbane. And I um, went up to her and um, said congratulations, you know, on your novel. So the novel hadn't been published yet or won the awards it had won apart from the Vogel Prize. So she wasn't a kind of household name at this stage, but um, it was quite a shock actually because very, very quickly I kind of found myself stepping backwards um, in the face of what was a little bit of a tirade uh, about Jewish communists and the Ukrainian famine and all of these kinds of things about which I actually knew very little. And, yeah, that was, that was my introduction to the hand that signed the paper. There was no hint of the scandal when Maggie Nolan met Helen, but little did Maggie know that the Helen Demidenko affair would become the subject of her research. I'm an associate professor in the humanities um, on the Brisbane campus of Australian Catholic University. And my research area is really interested in questions of race and ethnicity in Australian literary culture. Early on, The Hand That Signed the Paper received positive reviews. It was hailed as the authentic voice of the migrant experience. And I can't stress this point enough. Helen Demidenko herself described the book as faction. That is, a blend between fact and fiction. In the early reviews of the novel, there were frequently reviewers saying, oh, you know, this novel reminds us that, you know, amongst us are people that have experienced these dark horrors of European history and that Australians have been insulated from that. That was the early framing of the novel. A storm was brewing, though, and negative reviews were dribbling in. But then it was shortlisted for the 1995 Miles Franklin Literary Award, Australia's most prestigious book prize. I must confess I was completely shocked when I found I was shortlisted, completely shocked. It was shortlisted alongside three other highly regarded books, Richard Flanagan's debut novel, Death of a River Guide, Kate Grenville's Dark Places and Jay Verney's A Mortality Tale. There's no doubt the shortlisting drew attention to the book. And some critics were uncomfortable with the portrayal of Jewish people who are represented as callous brutes. You see, the hand that signed the paper tells the story of a Ukrainian family who side with the Nazis and commit terrible crimes against the Jews. Why? Because they had suffered during the Ukrainian famine, which killed millions and they believed that Jewish communists had basically manufactured the famine at the behest of the Stalinist Soviet regime. The problem has always been for um, Ukrainians was th that uh, whilst everyone remembers the Holocaust, which is a, a great barometer of evil, uh, few people outside of the Ukrainian community 
know about the Ukrainian famine, which occurred in 1933 and wiped out nearly half of our population. The late Australian writer and journalist Pamela Bone was the first person to write an article calling into question whether the book was anti-Semitic. But then others joined too. This is Australian publisher Louise Adler. For myself personally, I think the book is of little literary value. I think it's um, soapbox fiction. I think it's soap opera fiction. I think it's light pornography of a not very exciting kind. Louise Adler was offended by the perspective of the novel. Her Jewish parents had fled Nazi France. But that's all okay. What's not okay is the sense that this book and the ideas that it perpetrates, the ideas that it propagates, are actually considered uh, acceptable in our community. It seems to me that there are some moral incontrovertibles in our culture. The Holocaust happened, millions of people died, millions of people's people, Ukrainian, Jewish, etc., fought against fascism, and this book trashes their history. At question for many of these critics was the absence of a moral compass, acknowledging the horror of the Holocaust. Academic Maggie Nolan explains the anti-Semitic position that critics read into the book. It kind of bought into a certain uh, historical view that the um, Ukrainians participated in the Holocaust because of the Jewish communists um, kind of leading the um, Ukrainian famine. And this is a kind of... um, mythical anti-Semitic historical narrative that the novel subscribes to. And the narration of the novel doesn't really create much distance between the very anti-Semitic views held in the novel and the kind of viewpoint of the novel. There were also problems behind the scenes with the sometimes unusual behaviour of Helen Demidenko. Sophie Cunningham inherited the book when she took up a job with Alan and Unwin. When I moved to Alan and Unwin as a fiction publisher, I became responsible for for the fiction list and the hand that signed the paper was on the fiction list. It had been published before I got there, but very recently, I think. Sophie Cunningham wasn't a fan of the book, nor, it has to be said, of Helen Demidenko. But it was Sophie's job to support both. And then this happened. Last night, Helen Demidenko's brilliant career was boosted when she was awarded the Miles Franklin Literary Prize for her first novel, The Hand That Signed the Paper. Helen Demidenko was the youngest ever winner of the award. This was June 1995. In winning the Miles Franklin Award, Ms Demidenko joins an illustrious list of Australian authors. Patrick White, Thomas Keneally, Peter Carey and Tim Winton, all past winners. And suddenly the stakes grew higher. And on the night of the Miles Franklin, it was... I remember the group of us were at the Bayswater Brasserie, um, which was a place in Sydney where a lot of publishers went, and I was sort of standing there in a state of some despair in the, in the one room, and I looked, and most of Sydney Publishing was sort of looking at us, the Alan Armwin and others, the judges and people who were trapped in with Helen, who was dancing around the room, literally dancing around the room, and sort of being very physical with people and sort of, again in a slightly intense, difficult way, way that was difficult to manage and people were just looking and kind of laughing, sort of with us and at us. It wasn't exactly being... They weren't exactly being cruel, but you could, like... It was becoming a joke in the industry that this woman was 
behaving very strangely. And as if it didn't have enough gongs, the book went on to win its third award. In July 1995, Helen added the Australian Literary Society, or ALS Gold Medal, to her list of honours. This time, Matt Rubenstein, who'd shared the shortlisting limelight with Helen for the Vogel, attended the award ceremony for the ALS in Adelaide. And he says there was more dancing. So I went along there, and and that's where I met her. It was after the concerns about possible anti-Semitism were raised, but it was before her true identity was brought to light. And she was dressed in um, cornflower blue blouses. She she taught me uh, a Ukrainian folk dance, or, or so she said. I, I don't know very much about dancing, so it uh, I couldn't say whether it really was a Ukrainian folk dance, but trust that she did her research on that. In fact, it turns out Helen did attend Ukrainian dance classes. While Helen Demidenko was collecting award after award and celebrating with her Ukrainian heritage on full display, the debate about anti-Semitism was becoming increasingly vitriolic. In fact, with each award, Helen drew more attention to herself and the book. Letters for and against the book poured into the editors of newspapers. Book reviewers were arguing with each other. Helen even claimed to be receiving death threats. And then she and conservative journalist Gerard Henderson went head-to-head on Australia's premier current affairs program, the ABC's 7.30 report. Henderson believed the novel was obviously anti-Semitic. There is a whole history of Soviet anti-Semitism, official Soviet anti-Semitism, which ran through the regimes of Stalin, of Khrushchev and of Brezhnev. Now, if Ms Debedanko is going to write history, she needs to understand a bit about it, and I don't think she does. Her, her, her book is historically flawed and the comments she's made after the publication of the book are also historically flawed. I strongly suggest you should go and ask, argue that with Leonard Shapiro, who is the most distinguished historian of Soviet history look, I think, uh, look, and one whose I, I, work I, I, I used extensively me, I, in the preparation of my I text. have met Shapiro in my time. I think he would be horrified by the message of this book. And it went on. I think it's a little bit worrying when someone who is not Jewish begins to speak for the Jewish community. I'm not speaking for anyone. I'm just speaking, I'm just, I'm just quoting historical facts. I'm not facts. sure. You, if you, you, seem you stop to, interrupting you me for a minute. You seem to be before speaking I, I'm not speaking for Jews. anyone. I'm quoting historical facts and your history is wrong. The backlash against Helen's book and criticism about its historical inaccuracy was now in full swing. Then came the bombshell that exposed Helen Demidenko. On August 19, 1995, reporter David Bentley of Brisbane's Courier-Mail reported that Helen Demidenko was, in fact, Helen Darvel. Her father was not Ukrainian and her mother was not Irish. She was the daughter, in fact, of British immigrants. Her mother said, we're poms. <laughs> you can imagine, you know, all hell broke loose. Remember... This is how Helen described her intimate connection to the Ukrainian history explored in the hand that signed the paper. My dad lived through the famine, so I was able to get a lot from him. And also my aunt and an uncle as well, who's since passed on, had lived through the famine and could remember it. And dad had this wonderful sort of child's vivid memory because my father was too young for um, the Second World War, fortunately. 
and uh, just had this sort of lucid child's memory of both the famine and the German occupation. Journalists who'd reported on the book and took the story at face value were embarrassed. This is the former ABC journalist and broadcaster, Terry Lane. Well, I'm angry, of course, and now to find out that I'd actually made a fool of myself asking questions which were based on mendacious material and listening to the sheer eyewash in reply, of course, what I feel is not that she's been a smart cookie, as her brother is supposed to have said, but she has been a very dumb cookie because she has abused that trust on which we base all of our relationships with people who come into the studio with something to sell. You know, whether it's a book or a product or a political party or an idea, there is always that trust that the person is who they say they are. The publisher of the book, Alan and Unwin, felt the heat too. Sophie Cunningham says that the reaction to the hoax was extreme. I mean, I got death threats a lot. I mean, I don't know how many other staff members did. There was a lot of personal pressure um, on everyone. And the Miles Franklin Literary Award judges were called on to defend their decision to award the prize to the hand that signed the paper. ABC Books broadcaster, the late Jill Kitson, was one of the judges that year. Does that mean the Miles Franklin panel was conned? Not at all, because when, well, nor was the Vogel, and nor were the judges of the ALS gold medal, because um, when you're judging a literary work, you judge it as it stands. You don't, you're not uh, judging... The, uh, the, you're not judging it in relation to the author's personal biography. So the, the, the authenticity of, um, of the story uh, didn't have any bearing? No. Um, if, it w- if it were a work of non-fiction, of course it would. But we're talking about fiction. That's what fiction is. And then the chair of the Miles Franklin judging panel, Leonie Kramer, came out with this. We have a reluctance to deal with ideas on their own, in, in their own right. We, we do have a tendency to target people rather than the ideas that they express. And I think she was a victim of that. I think anybody of her age with a first novel must have been very hurt by the viciousness of the attack. I, I don't have any objection at all to people disputing the judge's decision, not liking the book, thinking it didn't matter. But viciousness is another thing. All of this led critics of the book's purported anti-Semitism to double down. This is Robert Mann, former editor of the conservative magazine Quadrant, on ABC Radio. People have felt when they read the book, both the, the a sort of dreariness about it in general, but also a, a something peculiar about it, which is... It's hard to put your finger on. Eventually, I put my finger on it is that there is no moral world that exists, or almost none. Now, for me, a moral world requires something, for example, like a sense of justice or a sense of pity or a sense of terror when events are terrible, and particular sense, in this case, of remorse. Now, none of those concepts have any life at all in the book. At most, people vomit or feel physically, physically unwell if they commit atrocities. But if I can give just one little example to show what I mean, at a certain point in the book, the young Australian, uh, Ukrainian, Irish girl, uh, Fiona, finds out when she's 12 years old that her father, Evhany, has uh, pictures of Babi Yar where 33,000 Jews were killed uh, with the pits choked uh, with bodies in his bedroom drawer. 
She goes to it, she opens it, and then there's a family discussion uh, which is so flat and unemotional and so little follows as a consequence of it that you, you feel you're in a mad world. Now, that, I think, is, is all the way through the book. All the deaths appear like that. So bayoneting babies, or I don't really want to even repeat all the terrible things she describes, none of it seems to have any meaning. And thus it seems to me to be, it's, it's like a landscape w- without any of the fundamental features that are required to understand the landscape. But not everyone was against the book. Some saw the media storm as a complete overreaction. Australian poet Les Murray was a defender and wrote a poem, The Deployment of Fashion, which criticised Helen's victimisation by the media. And the Australian literary critic Andrew Reamer was one of the book's most vocal defenders against the charge of anti-Semitism. He was Jewish-Hungarian and had escaped the Nazis before coming to Australia as a young boy. Andrew Reamer wrote the first full account of the scandal called the Demodenko Debate. What she seems to be saying is that those people who supervised the most appalling act of genocide in a century were really basically ordinary people who in other circumstances could be seen as lovable and kind by their relatives and friends. I think that there is a feeling that the uh, extermination of European Jewry, the Holocaust, was somehow an act or a manifestation of such radical evil that you cannot, even should not, try to explain it in human terms. And I find that very distressing. It sounds farcial now, but remember Helen wore Ukrainian costumes to interviews. She performed Ukrainian folk dances at literary awards nights. Maggie Nolan says the book's authenticity vanished when Helen Demidenko became Helen Darvill. So those people that had accused the novel of anti-Semitism were quite vindicated, I think, because, of course, the argument that this was understandable and needed to be tolerated because of somebody's personal, family and cultural experience just completely fell apart. And I think the novel supporters... They kind of doubled down in a way that perhaps in, you know, in retrospect seems unwise because I think one of the things that ended up happening was that they were saying, no, no, it had nothing to do with her being a migrant. No, no, it had nothing to do with it being an authentic voice. It was purely on the basis of the writing. Given even that the Miles Franklin Judges Award had said that this was the voice of the authentic migrant experience that was doing something quite different in the Australian context. So, (laughs) you know, instead of just saying, oops, that was a stuff up, um, the supporters of the novel ended up kind of making a claim that it had nothing to do with who she was, which was just clearly not the case. Helen had been masquerading as Helen Demidenko for two years. But how and why? Hello, Sarah. I don't think... Correct me if I'm wrong, I've been on your show since 1996. Well, I've been looking through the archives and I haven't found you there, so you're possibly very right. I have found you on other programs, though. You are hearing the voice of Helen Dale. She's no longer Helen Darvill, nor Helen Demidenko. Helen agreed to speak to me this year, 2023, about the scandal 
and why she did it. When I wrote it in sort of 1991, 1992, roughly, uh, I thought I was a pretty good writer, you know, flair for writing. But what I wanted to do, because I planned the literary hoax that went with it, with a fair degree of systematisation, is I wanted to win one of the various awards, and I don't think they exist anymore, for multicultural writing at the time, and then blow the whistle on myself and point out that these were nonsense, that writing was independent of the ethnic background of the author and what you judged was not whether the author was a good or a bad person or an interesting or an uninteresting person or right or left wing, but whether they had written a good or a bad book. And in many respects, this is the problem when you try to plan one of these things, um, I was defeated by my own hoax. And I also learned a very important life lesson. When you perpetrate a literary hoax, you wrap the people who you've hoaxed in an omelette. It's not just egg on your face or egg on their face, and they don't thank you for it. I had really, really embarrassed people, and I did get an inkling as this was going. And remember, of course, it had gone on longer than I'd wanted because it was not working out the way I'd wanted. So I was learning an important life lesson about you can't predict the future. There is no information from the future. You can't predict it. And lying to lots and of people is going to make them very angry. It's going, and, and, Another it, and life the longer lesson? it goes on, the worse it's get, it, it gets. Although but in the background of this was also, I have been pretty open to an awful lot of people and nobody has said anything. So I had both of these going on in my head at the same time. I was sort of, is there this vast group of people out there who just don't care? I didn't know. And uh, is there another equally vast group of people out there who absolutely hate me but also hate the first group for not caring? I don't know because I had not made any attempt to really hide it. When were you planning to blow the whistle on yourself? Well, you said when I run, won the right sort of award, I wanted to win one of those multicultural prizes and blow the whistle on myself. And I remember saying at the time, I am not going to win the Mars Franklin Award. Pigs might fly. Oh, look, whoops, a pig just flew past my window. I was just absolutely confident that this was never going to happen in a million years. After the scandal, Helen read law at Oxford. She had a stint back in Australia as a political advisor for Senator David Lionhelm, but now she lives in Scotland and works as a consultant for right-wing think tanks and commentates on legal issues. She's also written two other novels. Helen Dale's explanation of the events now seemed quite different from the motivations she outlined in an apology she wrote in August 1995. This scandal was so big that the apology made front-page news around the country. Here's a colleague reading excerpts from the letter. The interests that led to my writing The Hand That Signed the Paper began while I was still at school. I met a Ukrainian with first-hand experience of wartime atrocities. The story stayed with me. At the age of 21, I began the writing process and went back to my original source of stories. As I read widely and became more engrossed in the writing, I decided to take the name Demidenko, a Ukrainian name, in empathy with the characters I was creating. Part of my motivation was to protect my source. 
The persona adopted for my writing took over my life. This is the way I write. I found myself making foolish responses as media attention grew more and more intense. I am truly sorry if my book or my actions have been perceived in any way as anti-Semitic or degrading to the Ukrainian community. So there's two explanations here of the same event from different angles, but with a gap of 30 years in between. The other mystery is that no one blew the whistle on Helen's identity sooner. Although Maggie Nolan doesn't think this is so strange. You know, there were a number of people that had spoken about being incredibly betrayed by her friends and supporters um, who had known her a few years and who had no idea that she wasn't Helen Demidenko. So the extent of the masquerade was pretty... And I'm not even sure that masquerade is the right word for that, you know. Taking on a whole other persona in history is what seemed to have been happening there. Was Helen herself surprised at how long it took for her true identity to be revealed? Yes, I was very surprised. Do you want me to explain why I was surprised? Yes, we do. I made very little attempt to hide it at all. And to give you an idea of how little attempt I made to hide it, on all my university documents, I use both names, my birth name, Darvel, and Demidenko. I would hyphenate them. Every single university document, I can show you testimonies, uh, the, the, the official transcripts that I was awarded with both names on them. So I made no attempt around the university, around my friends, um, around official documentation to hide it at all. And I, I admit I was starting to get quite worried by this point because I knew at that stage that I had been shortlisted for the Miles Franklin. But I had already been shortlisted when I was getting up with my name in lights amongst a very small group of people who'd been given university medals. And I made no attempt to hide anything from anyone. So, yes, I was very shocked by this. Helen's answers might not seem very satisfactory. Why wait for others to reveal the truth behind her false claims? Why didn't she drop the Ukrainian act and come forward and come clean? She was young, it's true, and in her early 20s, she was probably in over her head. But when I listen to Helen now, I'm also wondering, is she being straight with me? Is she rewriting history? After the inflammatory revelations that Helen was Darvel, not Demidenko, she went into hiding to escape the media storm. To put the furor into context, I'm holding a book called The Demidenko File, it's a compendium, a catalogue of the many hundreds of news articles, letters to the editor and even radio and TV coverage of the saga. It's 300 pages long and was published in 1996. But that wasn't even the end of the story or Helen's coverage in the press, which pops up every few years. There were charges of plagiarism against the book, which were dealt with between the publisher and Helen's lawyers, and in 1997, Helen Darvel was employed by the Courier-Mail as a columnist, but was sacked after it was revealed the very first column 
was almost entirely plagiarised. After the Helen demidenko Darvel scandal, Alan and Unwin were heavily criticised for neglecting to verify Helen's credentials. Sophie Cunningham was fiction publisher then. Did they learn from their mistakes? I do think that we were slow to respond to this. Uh, um, Alan and I was slow to respond. Uh, I like to think that any publishing house would have been. At the actual time when I had conversations with my bosses about this, they believed it was their job to stand by an author and a book that they had published and that you didn't just dump a book or a person the moment that their accusations were made. I wasn't personally comfortable with that decision. However, I was a junior publisher and I think had a sort of a less of a sense of responsibility over, for the overall company and was just really reacting to my sense that this was going to spiral out of control and cause us a terrible problem. And I think these days publishers are getting tougher. Contracts have got tighter. Publishers are more are less trusting, editors are less trusting, authors are pushed more. But that wasn't really happening in the early 90s. Now Helen Dale has a new publisher. I read an e-book version of The Hand That Signed the Paper that came out in 2017 with a new introduction by the author. It's been reissued by the online publishing venture Ligature. And who's the publisher? Matt Rubenstein, who was shortlisted for the Vogel Prize alongside Helen 30 years ago. My publishing company is called uh, Ligature Publishing. It's a very small operation, but I started it 10 years ago now, uh, initially as a way to get my own books back into circulation. Um, They'd gone out of print some years before. And so after publishing my own books again, I started looking around to see um, what else I could publish. I really wanted to make sure that uh, as many books that I could manage to bring back into circulation um, would be would be brought back. And obviously, um, Helen's book had gone out of print after a while. I thought it was a very uh, significant book in the history of Australian publishing. So it seemed to be an obvious choice as a Miles Franklin winner, as a winner of the other awards, to, uh, to bring back if Helen was interested, uh, and she was. I thought that the cultural storm that engulfed the book in the 90s was part of the reason that it should be published again. A lot of people have ideas about the book, perhaps coloured by the cultural storm, and I thought that a book that was so important um, to the literary scene and literary history in Australia uh, should be brought back into print so that people can could make up their own minds about it. And was there a backlash? There was a bit. Like, I got some questions from people. I had some conversations with people who were concerned and wanted to know the reasons that I was publishing it again. Uh, and I think that was that was pretty amicably solved. I, I did lose one author, um, who I was very sorry to lose, but could understand uh, their reasons for, for not wanting to be on the same list. Although they did say that um, that they understood that as a publisher, it was sort of up to up to me to, rather than other authors, to decide what was going to be on the publication list. Matt Rubenstein says he also had to respond to concerns from the Jewish community about the novel being reissued as an e-book. I told them I didn't think the book would make the same impact as it had 20 years before. Um, I published a few backlist books until then, and they'd sold sort of modestly, but um, there, there was no way that it would have the same kind of effect as, as it had in the 90s. 
Hellendale, for her part, still refutes the idea that the book is anti-Semitic. I like to use a line from the science fiction author S.M. Sterling on this. There is a word for people who confuse the opinions of characters in novels with the opinions of the author. That word is idiot. And that I still held that view and I haven't changed. And I haven't changed it at all. It's just, if you are going to write a book where a significant number of the characters are concentration camp guards, they will be massive racists. It's kind of necessary for the job, otherwise it's not going to work. This too was the argument many of Helen's supporters used to refute the anti-Semitism in the text. So do you regret the lies? I I regret it in the sense that I didn't win my argument and I regret my naivety thinking that I could win that sort of argument. This is the people you annoy like that, people you wrap in an omelette, don't thank you for it point. However, I can't say I regret having a best-selling book because it did give me advantages that I was able to use later on in life and even immediately at the time. Most authors don't make much money from their books and a lot of people have got a very false idea in their head because they see Stephen King or J.K. Rowling or people like that that, uh, oh, yes, writers can make squillions. And whilst I didn't make squillions, I'm certainly not Stephen King or J.K. Rowling, I have had one bestseller and my two subsequent books were not bestsellers, although they sold perfectly adequately and I'm quite pleased with what they did. Um, But it meant, for example, in the context of, uh, of a young person in their 20s, I was able to buy a house. So I can't regret that. It would be foolish to do so. So you'd do it all again? Would I do it all again? Oh, goodness. No, not as, not as someone who's 51 years old and now has a very good life <laughs> writing po- about politics and Brexit and legal commentary and so on and so forth and, and does consulting on the side. I am very happy and pleased with my life and I have no desire to change it. So Helen admits she profited from her deception She was able to buy a house from the money she earned from the book sales. She doesn't really regret what she did. She doesn't think she'd do it again. There's no need to. Maggie Nolan, though, questions whether this really was a hoax. You could actually argue that Demi Denko wasn't a literary hoax in the strictest sense at all, in the sense that Demi Denko did not set out to hoax people although she had subsequently said she did. Um, At the time, it didn't seem that that was the case. And it's worth revisiting for, for that reason. I think it was huge, a huge kind of moment. In total, four books were written exploring the meaning and impact of this saga immediately after it occurred, including The Culture of Forgetting by Robert Mann, which is a fascinating exploration of the hoax, his reading of anti-Semitism in the text and Helen's background. Now, there are many people who didn't want to speak to me for this story on the Helen Demidenko affair. While some from that time have since died, others preferred to stay silent. You know, one said the story made them weary. Another 
didn't want to give Helendale a platform. Another thought it was now a quaint story and not worth revisiting. But I just can't help but think that even after 30 years, for some, the pain and hurt this scandal caused hasn't washed off. But next time in Fakes and Frauds, I talk to the people directly affected by the Wanda Kulmatri hoax. I'm Sarah Lestrange. Thanks to sound engineer Angie Grant, executive producer Rhiannon Brown and Claire Nichols. You can find the other Fakes and Frauds episodes on the ABC Listen app. Listener.